Thank you again for joining us here this morning at Oasis Church. So pleased to see all of you here this morning. Um, This morning, uh, we have this reason to celebrate. We've just sung about, now we're going to hear from God's Word about what it all means. And the title of this message is called The Perfect Timeline, God's Eternal Plan to Save. And I want to start out with Galatians 4.4, where it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. This morning we focus on the greatest happening in human history, at least until this point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most compelling story that there is. It's amazing to me that sometimes on this day, folks feel they need to dress up the story. But no novel, no movie, no play can compete with the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, so many times, people in the church feel they need to dress it up a bit. And on Resurrection Sunday, all over the country this morning, there are churches that will hold Easter egg hunts. Now, I know I might step on toes a little bit here. I like chocolate, too. But they'll do stuff like that, and they want to take advantage of the fact, and it is a fact, that Resurrection Sunday is probably the most attended church day of the year. And so naturally, every pastor, every church board, every Christian who cares about the Great Commission and seeing people participate in the church, they want to see a lot of people in church on Sunday morning, especially this morning. But sometimes, rather than the actual reason for celebration, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ being the centerpiece and main focus, many churches will resort to trying to create a carnival atmosphere with colored eggs and candy and coloring books and all kinds of things like that. Now, they'll tell you, well, we want families to come to the church. We want to attract them to our church, so we'll use whatever gimmick is necessary to get them here, and then once they're here, then we'll expose them to the gospel. And I would never put the motivations under question. I want to be clear about that. I believe many people really want to reach their communities, and so they have these types of events, um, and they've, they've become a way of outreach I'm sure their motivation really is to see people come to saving faith in Jesus. However, the problem of this is that the Bible tells us that in the end, there is one means that God uses to draw men to himself. And that is by drawing attention to the cross and the risen Savior through the proclamation of the gospel. It's a mysterious thing called preaching. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Interesting. Paul calls it a, the folly of what we preach. Now, we know for certain if we've studied any of Paul's writings, he didn't really believe that it was folly for him to preach, but rather it seems folly to those who put an awful lot of stock in the wisdom of the world. To those who think of themselves as philosophers, wise people, those who like to debate, those who uh, would like to just argue all day long about different topics. And I did something I usually say we shouldn't do a moment ago. I read you one verse absent from its context. 
If you attend church here at Oasis, you know that I don't like to do that, and I don't recommend you do that. So let's take a look at what Paul meant when he was using the word folly here. You see, what he was saying was that it is folly to those who are not in Christ. In other words, those who have never put a saving faith in Jesus Christ. To those who have not responded to the good news about Jesus with faith, all of this seems like folly. 1 Corinthians 1, we'll go back to verse 18 now, we'll get the context a little more. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The world can't know God through wisdom. That is the wisdom of people. But what appears to be a folly to those who put a lot of stock in their earthly wisdom, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And those of us who God has drawn to himself through the preaching of the gospel and have been regenerated by his spirit and saved with a saving faith, we are not ashamed to share this with others. Because Paul said to the Roman church, and we ought to agree with this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel or good news about Jesus is folly to worldly people who feel they have a lot of wisdom. And it appears to be silly and weak to many people. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, so we are not ashamed of it, because it brings salvation to all who believe. Many in the world look at what in the church every week, uh, that people would gather to pray and sing some songs and hear some guy stand up and talk about what the Bible says to us. For many, that is folly. But it is the means that God has ordained by which he draws men and women to himself in order to save those that he's going to give the gift of faith to. So gathered here this morning are many people. Some of you I know and many of you I do not know. I do not assume that everyone here has put faith in Jesus Christ and made him Lord and King of their lives. In fact, unless we have the first church service in history where everyone is for sure saved... Out of this many people, I can assume that are many here that do not have a true saving faith in Jesus. And so, I preach. Some of you 
are here because you were kind enough to join your family. You don't attend church except on the holidays, which indicates you most likely do not have a deep love for the church that says you desire to be there. But you still have enough respect or love for your family, so you're willing to come a couple times a year to church. In this group, there are those who may be agnostic. That means they don't really care about church or religion. They don't have anything against it, but they don't really care much about it. And possibly there are also those here that are antagonistic to the church, and maybe they even have a good reason for not liking the church because they had a bad experience. Maybe they were once hurt by people in the church who called themselves the people of God. It does happen. Others among us are true believers and attend church regularly and are committed to the church, giving time, friendship, finances, and talents to make the church the beautiful community that it is. Some are here and you're true believers. It just happened to be traveling and you needed somewhere to come today, so here you are. And it is also possible that some here are new to the area. They simply found our website. They wanted to be somewhere on Resurrection Sunday morning. And you found that our location and our service time worked into your plans this morning. And if that's the case, we welcome you as well. And as I preach this morning, I have nothing to do with whether or not God will draw someone to himself other than my responsibility to preach and be faithful to God's word. But my prayer for you is this. For the true believers among us, may this reminder of the wonderful story of God's salvation plan build your faith and inspire you to serve God better. For those who are not believers, my prayer is that God will draw you to himself this morning by his Holy Spirit and through his word and through the folly of this thing we call preaching. The title of the sermon is Perfect Timing. Let's look again at the verse I opened with, Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. From eternity past, God has always known the perfect time to implement each of the steps of his plan to give salvation to sinners. And we're going to look very quickly this morning through a few of the major events in God's timeline. And God has put eternity in our hearts. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. We must begin with a very important understanding. And that is that God is not constrained by time. He's eternal. It means he's always been around and he always will be. Also, he is self-existent. There's no force above him that he must rely on to exist. So when we look at this timeline, it's important to understand that our timeline we're talking about actually has a beginning, even though God himself does not. And we see in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation marks the beginning of the timeline as we know it. So God created the world. Everything in the world, the elements, energy, the laws of physics. He created creatures, animals, and human creatures. God is the only thing eternal and has complete control over time. And in Galatians 4.4, we see that Jesus was born in the fullness of time. Now, to fully appreciate how God knew way ahead of time when the fullness of time would be, the time that would be just right and perfect within his plan of redemption for mankind, we can go through various parts of Scripture, and we can see that in this book, the Bible, written over a period of thousands of years by dozens of authors who were separated not only by time but often by geography as well, the Bible is absolutely perfect in how every part fits together with the rest. And this morning, I hope that you will leave here with at least a better understanding and appreciation of the perfection of God's word and how amazingly it was assembled. I mentioned the creation, but I can't elaborate too much here at this time. If I were to, I might get in trouble because many of you may have hams in the oven and we don't want those lunches overcooked. But shortly after creation, we have an event in the timeline that we refer to as the fall. Not the autumn, the fall of man. You may have heard this story. God created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. He placed them in a paradise, the Garden of Eden. He said, take care of this place. Be fruitful and multiply. And they were allowed free access to the entire place with one exception. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent twisted God's words. And Adam and Eve ultimately ate of the tree. And this is when sin entered the world, and with sin, many consequences of sin, including death. And perhaps at this point, you're wondering what this has to do with Resurrection Sunday. Well, here's the deal. Jesus rose from the grave, and we celebrate that today. But why did he need to die in the first place? And what good does it do us? Well, to fully answer this, we have to talk about the fall. So Adam and Eve sinned. God came to them and issued a decree of the grave consequences, physical and spiritual death, painful childbirth for women, thorns and thistles to thwart the efforts of men in his work, and he would work and sweat hard to to do the same work that previously had been pleasurable to him. Man and women would be at odds with one another. But the consequences were not for Adam and Eve only. The serpent was also given a punishment. Because the serpent had twisted the word of God and led astray Eve. And in the curse of the serpent, which included being relegated to eating dust and going on its belly, there was also a promise that gives us a hint that God would someday provide a remedy for the sin of mankind. So we see this in Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now, this scripture is what we call a messianic prophecy. It's a 
prophetic statement that points us towards Jesus. He would be the one whose heel was bruised. That is, he suffered and he died on the cross. But ultimately, he would bruise the head of the serpent. And we're going to get there soon and elaborate on that. Throughout the Bible, we see God expanding on this promise of one who would be born of woman and who would bruise the head of the serpent. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is another prophecy. Uh, I think about 700 years before Jesus was born. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, of course, we hear this verse when? Christmas time, right? So those of you who only come to church on Christmas and Easter, this one you probably picked up, refers to the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel tells us clearly that this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. And since we're on the subject of the timeline, again, let's go back to Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There are many events in the timeline that I cannot go over in this brief time. Remember, I said the crockpots are simmering back home for many of you. But the intermediate time, there's all kinds of other things that happened in this timeline that pointed to Christ again and again throughout Scripture especially the many prophetic prophecies that pointed to the birth, life, death, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus. There's Abraham's journey, the enslavement of God's people in Egypt, led out by Moses, who also gave the law, and finally the arrival at the promised land, but with many problems and fallbacks and hard lessons that were learned. With Moses came the law, the Ten Commandments you may have heard of, but the laws relegating are regulating the sacrifices as well so that whenever a sin happened, there was a remedy which involved blood. They would take an animal and they would kill the animal and make a sacrifice to atone for their sin. But all of this pointed to a sacrifice that would be made that would be a once and for all sacrifice. Do you know who made the first sacrifice for sin in the Bible? God. God did You see, before sin entered the garden, Adam and Eve were naked, innocent, completely free from any shame. After they sinned, their eyes were opened to understand evil, and they suddenly realized they were naked. What that really represents is shame. They had shame over their sin. The way God covered their shame was that he killed animals to make garments for them. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This showed that to cover for sin, to forgive sin, for the removal of shame from sin, there had to be the shedding of blood. Of course, one may still say, but I don't think God is really going to punish people for sin since that's just what their nature is in them to do, but... If we think this, we've totally missed out on the holiness of God and what that means. In our world, that's pretty common. People have no respect for God. They don't understand that he's perfect. He's powerful. He's the creator. He gets to make the rules. And we have all broken the rules. The Bible says if we break just one of God's rules, we are guilty of breaking the entire law. We could go through some of the laws just to show how guilty we are. 
But those laws are summed up in these, Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Who among us would be so bold as to say we've perfectly kept that law? We cannot. All have sinned. And we all have sinned, really, in two senses. For one, we bear the sin of Adam. Every descendant of Adam is born into sin. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Theologians call this concept federal headship. Adam was the chief representative for all mankind, the whole human race. And when he sinned, man spread to, or death spread to all men because of Adam's sin. And when people hear that, sometimes they might cry out, not fair. Why am I guilty for Adam's sin? Well, whether or not you consider it fair, this is God's decree. And as creator, the Holy One, he decides what is always right and good. And if God says all men sinned because we were all in Adam, and as the head of the race we bear his guilt, that is the right thing to have happened. Later, Paul answered an objection to someone who might say, well, it's unfair of God to judge people that he created for sinning. And Paul said this in Romans 9.20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? So we are all guilty of sin in the sense that Adam, as the head of our race, sinned. And so we are also born into sin because it's carried on. You could say it's in the DNA of every human. But even without the federal headship thing, we know in our hearts we're guilty of sin. Whatever sin you think is the most minor, whatever that is, You might have a list. You might say, well, this is the most minor sin I could ever commit. The most minor sin you can imagine is extremely offensive to our holy creator God. Every sin, R.C. Sproul often said, is cosmic treason. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to make up for our sin. We could give all our money away. We could do good deeds. We could even suffer. But none of that will bring us anywhere close to removing the guilt of our sin the shame of our sin, the penalties of our sin, which are like wages. The wages we earn from our sin is death, the Bible says. But God was good. He had determined that in the fullness of time, he would send his son to redeem those who were under the law. His timing was perfect. Historians have commented on how the timing of Jesus' birth and ministry was so perfect. The Roman Empire had built a road system and so the gospel was allowed to spread. And many other factories of history and geography have been pointed out to show this was a really good time for Jesus to have come. In God's perfect timing, he provided for Adam and Eve the sacrifice. He killed animals shedding their blood for their sin to cover their guilt and shame. And then he provided his own son to be the once and for all sacrifice. Friday night we reflected here on the sad events of Jesus' final hours before dying on the cross and the tomb. He was the perfect sacrifice that died so that you and I can be freed from our burden of sin, given eternal life instead of the spiritual death we deserve. He took the shame of being stripped and beaten so that our shame became his. 
and in a very uneven exchange for those who put faith in him, we are clothed in his righteousness. He takes our shame. We get to be clothed in his righteousness. And so it's the righteousness of Jesus that we will stand before God clothed in like pure white. Though your sins were like scarlet, the prophet Isaiah said, you will be made white as snow because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And when he sensed his death was imminent as he hung there, he said, it is finished. The debt was paid for our sins. God could turn his anger and wrath toward the, towards the sinful, that's me and you, away for those who were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His wrath was turned away. His sacrifice, just like the one God made for Adam and Eve back in the garden, gives a covering for us, for our sin and our shame. He was taken from the cross and laid in a tomb, and on the third day we read in Mark 16, and entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to him, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not there. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You see, the followers of Jesus had a little confusion. They had believed in him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, but then they watched him die on the cross and be buried. We can sympathize with that confusion, can't we? They hadn't fully understood that he must be the sacrifice for them. But oh, the joy of that morning. He is risen indeed. And yet the story is not yet complete. There's still time to come in God's perfect timeline for another major event, the return of the king. Sometimes we don't trust God's timing, but it will be perfect. We see the turmoil in our world, the craziness, the rampant sin, the injustice of the powerful trampling over the weak. We see death and sickness and sadness, and we wonder why God hasn't just ended it already. His timing is known to him, and it's perfect, but we have a hard time, if we'll admit it, believing sometimes that his timing is perfect, don't we? When we see all the stuff happening around us. And truly, every generation of the church has cried out to God, When? For now, God is showing his patience toward the sinful, and he's giving us who believe in him the privilege to share his good news as he continues to rescue sinners. But a day will come when his patience, or forbearance we call it, will end. It'll end. If you're, if you're living in sin and you have not repented and turned to Jesus God is being patient with you for now, but there's a day when his patience will end. I can speak for myself at least. When I pray, sometimes I feel a little schizophrenic because on the one hand, I pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And on the other hand, I want to ask him a little more patience. Please, there's lost souls still needing to be saved. God knows already who he will save and who, when he will complete his work. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant the work of his sacrifice, but the work of the church continues until the trumpet sounds. So we continue to sound the alarm to sinners. 
We must warn them that they have offended God, that the wages that they've earned for their sin is death, spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you this morning are those that we would call or refer to as unregenerate or unrepentant. And if you've heard this message from God's word and you felt fear for the judgment of God to come, put your faith in Jesus. He's proven that he has victory over sin and death. He can save you. If you do not call upon the name of the Lord, your sin has earned you the wrath of God, which you may only experience a taste of in this life. But in the judgment, you will learn that this, what the scripture means when it says our God is a consuming fire. If you've mocked God's created order by rejecting his call for all of us to live holy lives, if you've insulted the creator by choosing to make yourself out to be greater than him because you think your ways are better than his, if you know that you're in grave danger of judgment, and if you left the parking lot this very hour and were struck dead by a drunk driver on your way home, then the very next moment after your last breath you would be standing before God, the holy, holy, holy God, who will be the righteous judge of all and is a consuming fire and one who before the mountains will melt like wax. If you know and feel that fear of God in your heart at this moment, do not wait another minute but throw yourself at the mercy of the cross and turn from your sinful ways and turn toward God's ways of righteousness and holiness. In the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, it's recorded this sermon that Peter gave. And after he finished speaking, the Holy Spirit had moved on people's hearts so that they were troubled about what was going on with their sinful lives. And they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? And in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul would write that God's love is proven in this fact, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you choose this day to put your faith in Jesus for salvation, you must verbally confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart with a true, real belief that God raised him from the dead and you can be saved. Romans 10, 8 to 10 says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. God's word is near to you at this moment. Does he draw draw you to himself this day? I want to give you a few signs that God might be drawing you to himself this moment. First, if God is drawing you near to himself, you will feel a godly sorrow for your sins. This means you feel truly sorry, not just because of the trouble you might get into, but because you've offended the holy and perfect God. Another sign that God might be using this message to draw you to himself is that you suddenly fear him like you never have before. Now, fear can be our friend, right? If fear of dying on the highway causes you to wear a seatbelt, that's a healthy fear. 
If, you, if your fear of God causes you to run to the cross of Jesus for salvation, that fear is your friend. Not only this, but we should fear because it's our duty, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Another sign that God might be drawing you to himself is that if you're hearing the words of the scripture and you're beginning to believe that they're true. If you're beginning to believe that it's true, that could be a sign that God is drawing you to himself. And finally, if you are feeling a true and godly sorrow for your sins and that healthy fear of God and his judgments, and if you believe that this is true and you follow Paul's charge to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, then once you do this, you will feel a tremendous peace you have never felt before. And anyone who can testify to that, say amen. If any of these things are happening in your heart, and you would like someone to talk with or pray with, please, after our service closes, we have a prayer room right through that door right there. And we're going to have some men that can pray with you and, and share with you a little more and try to teach you in the ways of our Lord. Don't lose your opportunity. Now let me reflect on just one more part of this timeline that we still look forward to. And with this, I'm going to close. I'm going to set a scene for you. A man named John had a revelation. And it's the very last book of the Bible is a recording of that revelation. And in his revelation, he was in the throne room of heaven. And there was a scroll presented, but they couldn't find anyone worthy to open the scroll. So what does John do? He begins to weep because no one was found worthy. But here's what happens next. Oh, this is good news, folks. This is good. Wish I wrote it myself, but... He's weeping because no one can be found that can open the scroll. And in Revelation 5, 5, we see, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth and he went and took the scroll from his right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, Numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor 
and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus, who was humiliated and beaten and mistreated and betrayed and died on that cross and was put in a grave, that Jesus is now risen and he is glorified. And he will continue to be glorified. All of this will happen in God's perfect timing. Let's pray.